Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another FT Management podcast. My name is Adam Jones and the theme today is how to negotiate in a downturn. To provide some expert advice on this question, I have sitting next to me Tim Cullen of Oxford University's Said Business School. Tim heads the school's negotiation training programme for managers in the private and public sectors. He's also been chief spokesman and a senior advisor at the World Bank. Now, Tim, we are currently in a situation where a lot of things are not getting done because of a fundamental lack of trust in the marketplace. How does one establish trust in a negotiation? Well, the first thing is that... Unfortunately, there is a perception that in negotiation anything goes and it's okay to lie in negotiations. And uh, in fact, the American Bar Association's model guidelines for American lawyers says lawyers should never lie, but there's a footnote that says, but in a negotiation, uh, not being absolutely accurate with the truth is okay. So there's a general sort of sense that negotiation, you can sort of get away with more things than you should. And it's a very false uh, false idea because uh, lying in negotiations actually builds up mistrust. And what you're always trying to achieve in a negotiation is to try to find the areas where um, something is of high value to you, which you want to acquire, but low cost for the other side to give away and vice versa. And if you uh, can't find out and, and, and you mislead uh, people about what is of high and low value, um, you're, you're then, you then can't achieve the benefits of this sort of trading back and forth. And so the key to uh, uh, effective negotiations and building up trust is actually to get to know the other side really well. Before embarking on a negotiation, information gathering is absolutely essential. So you know as much as possible about what you need to get out of the negotiation. And it's amazing how many people go into negotiations without having decided what the full range of their own interests are. But you also find out what all the other side's interests are, not just what the, the core headline interest is, but what all the interests are that could have a bearing on that particular negotiation. And what are the best ways of getting to know the other side? Are we, are we talking about dinners, a uh, round of golf? I was recently in North Korea, for example, and I was actually teaching the um, UN people there how to negotiate. And they had just had an American uh, team come in to talk about um, food aid. And I was talking to some of the UN people who were quite surprised that the Americans had arrived without knowing which provinces uh, in North Korea you could not get access to for NGOs to get in and find out what the food aid needs were. So that was something that could have been done well in advance. Uh, you're not going to have lots of cozy dinners with the North Koreans, but you can certainly do a lot of research in advance. The UN agencies have all that information. So they'd arrived in North Korea unprepared from that point of view. So a lot of information can be found out from perfectly normal channels nowadays. I mean, you find out a lot in the Internet. But you can find out a great deal of information by asking lots of questions in advance. Don't be afraid to ask the other side questions, too. Um, uh, very often it's amazing when the other side will say something which you, you feel is negative and is, is a blocking point, And people forget to ask the question, why? And sometimes the reason the other side is appearing to be unhelpful 
is perfectly legitimate. It's not because they're trying to get a better deal from you, but there may be some perfectly good reason why this is difficult for them. It may be a question of timing, or it could be any number of things. And simply asking the question why, instead of just what, you know, just there is a problem, but finding out what is the cause of the problem. People don't do that. So um, I think that doing your search in advance is very good. Um, you made the point about dinners, uh, having dinners with them. Uh, a lot of Westerners get frustrated in China that they have endless visits to the Forbidden City and the Great Wall and endless dinners of ducks' tongues and things like this, and they think, where's this leading us? But the Chinese side is very sensibly trying to get to know you. And I think getting to know people in a negotiation really well in advance is not always possible, and it's considered a luxury, but I don't think it is a luxury. And if in the course of getting to know somebody you're going to negotiate with, they rather proudly tell you how they managed to cheat on their taxes last year, it's a little warning signal that, uh, you know, maybe they might cheat you as well. Obviously, it's a, a great idea in theory to uh, try and better understand your, uh, the opposite uh, side of a, of a negotiation. But in some cases, there will be a, a clear imbalance of power in a negotiation. So understanding somebody else's motives is one thing, but actually uh, using those insights to change uh, their behavior in a way that suits you a little more is a little bit more difficult to pull off. I mean, how do you deal with those imbalances of power in a downturn, for instance? Well, I think, obviously, if, if you start off with a, a, a weaker position than the other side, your position may be weaker on the core thing you're negotiating, but there may be a lot of other things in play. And, and as I said, the uh, key to negotiation is finding out a lot of interests on both sides. And you may well find things where you actually do have some strengths if you fully explore all the interests of both sides. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that you can make very good use of contingency agreements as part of a negotiated contract because you're uncertain about what might happen next. And for instance, in the case of the economy at the moment, if there are negotiations between um, you know, failed banks and governments and things like this, contingencies about, well, if uh, interest rates are X amount a year from now, this will be one, one option and uh, another option with the other side. So contingency agreements can quite often help you, particularly if you are in a somewhat weaker position. But there's another dimension which is really, really important, I think, in negotiations and is, is one of the real problems in, in, in trust in negotiations, is that often you're negotiating through some third-party agent. Somebody else is negotiating for you. Um, I teach a case... Uh, which I which I've written based on on real life examples of buying and selling a house, and uh, uh, when you think about it, um, the principles are the buyer and the seller, but convention, at least in the UK, is that they don't meet. They don't negotiate directly normally. They negotiate through initially an estate agent and then through lawyers. So it's very possible in the case I teach to build up mistrust um, and, and a vicious cycle of mistrust, and it could be just one small action by perhaps the other side's lawyer that makes you start mistrusting um, your buyer, for example, if you're the seller. And this can then build up uh, quite unreasonably. There's no law that says you must never talk, the buyer and seller must never talk to each other in a negotiation. It's a convention. And often conventions, you need to break outside the convention a little bit and go directly to the, uh, to the people whose interests are really at play. So in the example of a house sale, you could compensate for the uh, the rudeness or the perceived rudeness of a lawyer by perhaps making a direct approach to the buyer or the seller uh, to try and smooth things over personally. Yes, or you could even, uh, in fact, in the case that uh, that, that, that I teach, um, the lawyer can be perhaps have responded to the other side rather harshly. 
uh, the principal, who's the seller, can say, well, wait a minute, that's created a rather bad impression. And the principal then can, can then come back, the seller can come back and say, well, look, um, actually, we're prepared to be more reasonable than our lawyer has suggested. Now that, and, and we'll make a concession in an area which perhaps is not of terribly high cost to the seller. And in return, uh, we'd like something back from you, the other side, which uh, is very important to the seller, but you know is not of terribly high cost to the, uh, to the buyer. And so you can actually... When the, when, the, when the agent has perhaps not represented your interests as effectively as possible, you can actually turn it to your advantage by coming across as more reasonable than your agent. And your greater reasonableness, one will hope, will spark a reciprocal reasonableness from the other side. And in that kind of situation, if we stay on the, the, the house sale uh, example, because I know that's something that will be preoccupying a lot of people right now, what is stopping the buyer, um, and frankly it would be a buyer in this situation, from behaving atrociously, dropping the, uh, the price at the very last minute? What's stopping them from doing that? Because they wouldn't have a reputational problem afterwards, would they? Uh, well, actually, in that case of a house sale, they could arguably because they're going to move into the house and they're going to have neighbours um, who are, were the neighbours of the people that they may have been unreasonable to. So actually, they should be paying attention to their reputation because that is that can actually be a factor. And, and one of the reasons that trust is very important in negotiation is that if you're going to negotiate with the same people again, that does matter. House sale, you don't negotiate with the same people again, but you're going to want to get on with your neighbours. And if the if the sellers are feeling bitter, um, that might be difficult. Realistically, in a, in a, um, a falling market like this, uh, unfortunately, given the way English law is, until you've exchanged contracts, the, the buyer can drop the price. Um, but I think that if a buyer and seller were to talk face-to-face, there is a greater possibility of reducing mistrust. Now, the lawyers will sometimes say, well, you know, you might give away more than you should and all this sort of stuff. But face-to-face encounters with people who are probably ordinary people, they're not actually out to screw anybody else. Um, But uh, a better understanding of both sides' positions and both sides' interests, which often the lawyers aren't going to tell you, uh, the estate agents may tell you a little bit more. You know, that sort of greater understanding could lead to compromises which you know, which are realistic, reflect the way the markets are, but at the same time don't create hate and dislike and real, um, you know, real clashes. Uh, and what are the psychological issues that sometimes hold uh, back sellers from actually making deals in the falling market? And I'm not just talking about the housing market now, but in general. Yeah, I think one very important thing and something we teach, big part of what we teach in, in our program at Oxford, um, is decision-making biases and pitfalls. And there are a number of those. One is the whole concept of heuristics, that uh, your mind quickly processes information, uh, applies to a new situation, something which you've experienced in the past, but it isn't quite the same, and you make mistakes based on that. Closely related to that is overconfidence. And I think our survival... Uh, in life uh, requires us to have a certain degree of confidence. Actually, most human beings are quite overconfident. They've got a greater sense of their ability, for instance, to forecast the future. Um, uh, If you don't have all the spreadsheets and computer programs instantly at at hand, a lot of people wing their forecasting, particularly at senior levels. Um, They have all the information, access to all the information, but in a crunch situation, they will base it on what the sort of past experience has been. So overconfidence is a, is a major thing, um, and uh, I think that's, that's, that's probably the key thing, but there are a lot of decision-making biases where people look at 
information. There's a vividness bias, for example, where the particular piece of information that jump out at them um, are the ones on which they make their decision. They should be looking at a much wider range of information. There's another trend at the moment which is for a, a greater cooperation or involvement of the, the, the public sector in the private sector with a, a range of um, deals where various governments have taken stakes in banks, for instance. What kind of issues does that raise in negotiations when you have private sector managers now negotiating with uh, public sector paymasters? Yeah, I think that, again, the trust issue comes in again. Um, I worked for the World Bank for 21 years, um, but I also have worked just about the same length of time in the private sector. On both sides, I've noticed uh, that there are caricatures of the other side. There are caricatures that the private sector have about bureaucrats. There are caricatures that the officials and bureaucrats have about the cowboys in the private sector and the profit motive and so on. And they are generally caricatures. And so get back to the same argument of getting to understand the other side, getting to understand the interests, and also being pragmatic, um, perhaps putting on hold on the private sector side some of your plans which are based on earlier uh, circumstances, and on the public sector side, moving away from your ideology. Uh, I think the idea that you, you, you can sort of suspend somewhat your conventional political priorities from, for, for a pragmatic standpoint and be willing to look at the people you're negotiating with, perhaps in a slightly different light. And to, but again, it gets back to getting to know them, understanding better, to know what their real interests are and so on. And, and, and in a way, suspending your views on your preconceptions of what these people are like. And it's very important in all negotiations. You see it in negotiations between uh, in civil wars and things like that. It's actually sort of forcing a recognition that the other side have got interests what their interests are and then trying to find common ground and try to find high value and low costs on both sides and it does require you to sort of get rid of some of your preconceptions about what you think those sort of people are like. And above all, do your research on the other side. Absolutely. Tim Cullen, thank you very much. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.